Let me ask you something. What if there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? That would probably creep you out. Well, that's exactly what happens every time you go online. Your internet provider stores logs of every website you've ever visited and can legally sell this data to anyone. Worse yet, the government can obtain your data via bulk FISA order, even if you're not personally suspected of any crime. That's why I use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com slash mullen right now and find out how you can get three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash mullen. Protect your data and get three months for free today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen talks freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Friday, February 3rd, the anniversary of the day the music died, the day that the great Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the big bopper J.P. Richardson were killed in the plane crash in 1959. And I've done an episode on that. I think it might have been this about this time last year or maybe around Buddy Holly's birthday So uh, if I think of it, I'll post a link to that. Not what I want to talk about today. And of course, I want to just uh, apologize to everybody for the absence of podcasts over the past month. A few of you have reached out to me to inquire as to what's going on. Generally, I've had uh, a dual challenge in doing the podcast in taking care of an elderly family member who required an especially a lot of attention over the past month, and also a business venture that I am pursuing that will hopefully be the last big one of my illustrious career. I'm hoping to set something up that will kind of take me into my golden years, something I've been wanting to do for a long time, and which I will give you more details on when it's all buttoned up if it's successful and confidentiality agreements don't don't preclude me from doing that. But Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about the whole Trump-DeSantis thing, (laughs) the the potential for DeSantis run for the presidency, Trump's announcement that he will be seeking the nomination in 2024. And I thought I would break this up into a couple of segments. One, to just take a look at Trump's record as president. And exactly what it is that his fervent supporters are hoping to see if he's elected again. And of course, also how DeSantis shapes up as a potential president should he win the nomination and is successful in the general election. I'm a little skeptical on both for DeSantis. It's disturbing that all of the usual neocon suspects are lining up behind DeSantis. And some people might say, well, that's just because they are, they're so against Trump. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But generally, and I posted a tweet to this effect, I've really been reflecting on the Trump years for the last couple of weeks. 
And my general question is, why does the establishment hate this guy so much? Now, obviously, they hated him coming in, and he talked like somebody who was going to be a loose cannon as far as you know they're concerned and might not go along with the, uh, the program as far as the neoliberal, neoconservative establishment is concerned. But let's take a look at his record, and really, I'm not exactly sure what it is they didn't like. And I think the, the elephant in the room, of course, would be the response to COVID-19. Now, whatever you think about COVID-19, if it was all you know, a planned conspiracy or it was just a, a virus that the establishment reacted with hysteria to, or some combination of the two, if it fit in well with plans they had to try to lower the standard of living of Americans in general because of their belief in climate change or whether they don't really believe that and it's just a a big money scam. Whatever you think, definitely one thing Donald Trump did not do during the COVID pandemic was buck the establishment. Now, early on, he said a few things that, you know, might be construed as resistance, but what did he do? He put Anthony Fauci and Deborah Burks in charge of the response. I guess Mike Pence also had a role, but you know he's an establishment guy. And, and really, let's face it, Fauci was the face of the administration as far as the pandemic was concerned. He said a few good things early on about lockdowns. And and then he just did an about face and, you know, was presented with the data by Anthony Fauci and went right along with, and let's not, you know, let's be clear here, the president and the federal government didn't lock down the states, but they provided the CDC recommendation to do so that gave governors cover to lock down their states. And more importantly, Trump not only signed the trillions of dollars in welfare spending that made the lockdowns possible, because without that spending, there would have been no lockdowns, not even in New York and California, because then those states would have had to pay for it themselves, and they couldn't. Obviously, you cannot tell people to stop producing but go on consuming for an extended period of time unless you bring in the means for that consumption. So the lockdowns could never have happened without the spending. Trump not only signed it, but he insisted his name go on the checks. So, I mean, let's just deal in reality here, actions rather than words. Trump's actions were... He was all on board with lockdowns, and he never really backed off. He started talking about opening back up at Easter at one point, but he didn't have the power to open back up at Easter. that, That was all the decisions of the governors. And once he signed the spending, it really didn't matter when he thought the governor should reopen. So... You know, as far as actions go (laughs) with COVID-19, whatever the plan was or whatever the establishment thought should happen once the pandemic hit, Trump went along lockstep with the World Health Organization and everybody else. So that's part of his record. That's just a fact and really is not open for a debate. And 
Of course, spending is another thing. Now, spending always increases faster under when Republican presidents are in office, regardless of who has Congress, than it does when Democrat presidents are in office. And you can go back as far as the Eisenhower administration, and this is always true. But it increased faster under Trump than under any president in the post-World War II era, maybe in history. I'd have to go back and check if the much smaller government, if FDR maybe represented a larger percentage increase. I'd have to look in World War II. But uh, certainly in the post-war period, no one has come close to increasing spending and percentage basis over his predecessor to Trump. So, and I'm not just talking about take, you know, depreciated dollars in 2017 and compare them to 1975 dollars. I'm saying over the last president in percentage terms, for example, spending went up about 33% during the Obama eight years over the Trump eight years. Well, it went up more than that under the, the Trump four years. And in fact, on a per year basis, it was just off the charts as far as increases in spending. And even if you take away the COVID spending, he was still spending, increasing spending, I should say, at a much faster rate. So really, as far as spending goes, you know, he was on board. He increased military spending. I mean, you could take a look at the Trump presidency and say, okay, he didn't start the Afghanistan or Iraq wars. That's a good thing. Neither did Obama. Obama started some other little wars and he he droned an awful lot of countries. But and he increased, you know, the right war, the Afghanistan war. So Obama's bad. Trump is better in that respect but he still increased military spending. So what's the benefit to American taxpayers of have of peace if you keep increasing spending over what we had when there was... So, of course, I would rather, even if the spending goes up, that there is no war and there is collateral damage of wars to American citizens and the harm to the people who, and I'm putting the air quotes up, serve in them because certainly... Taxpayers aren't served by these wars, but, but, you know, as far as the everyday Americans, we don't benefit by having peace when military spending keeps going up. Military spending is supposed to go down during peacetime. And of course, after the Afghanistan war and even before the Ukraine fiasco began, military spending still went up while Biden was in pre- was president. So you got to ask yourself why that is. Trump went right along with that. It was actually part of his plan. It was part of the the Trump Trump economics plan. Had four points, and one of them was to increase military spending, and then that would lead to more manufacturing jobs. But of course, these aren't productive jobs. These aren't jobs that make other Americans richer, like a factory that produces something that we can consume. It produces bombs that are going to go be used, wasted somewhere, and harm other people. So, you know, that that's a, a counterintuitive plan right from the beginning. Although I, I can understand why even libertarians were hopeful about Trump's foreign policy when he was elected or when he was running, and he made a, a foreign policy speech that at the time I said was, well, it's marginally better. I mean, it, it wasn't anything like a Ron Paul speech, like 
Let's march those troops home from overseas, discharge them from the army, cut military spending by hundreds of billions, and use that that windfall to allow young people to get out of Social Security and Medicare. That was the Ron Paul plan. Trump's was nothing like that. And, I mean, let's face it, Trump, who I think was sincere, generally believed in the empire. And he just thought that we shouldn't be so reckless and good for him. But what did his foreign policy really look like? He bombed Syria twice. You know, they trumped up these chemical weapons attacks, which I think we all understand now were always baloney. And probably the ones that actually occurred were perpetrated by the terrorists that the U.S. were funding to overthrow Assad. And a couple of them didn't even occur at all. And he was convinced to bombed Syria twice. He ran the ultimate neocon pressure campaign on Iran, which at this point, let's face it, there is no reason for the United States government to be hostile towards Iran at all. Yes, I know. World's largest state sponsor of terrorism. Blah, 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 blah. I've been hearing that all my life. And of course, some of my Lebanese relatives are like, yeah, they're destroying our country by supporting Hamas. But I think when you look at the empire's record against Iran and other Middle Eastern countries, they might look at it like, hey, these are revolutionary guerrillas, freedom fighters, whatever. So all I know is that this does not benefit United States taxpayers in any way. And when I say taxpayers, I mean net taxpayers. So not the ones who pay taxes out of the money they get from the the neocon empire, like defense contractors, et cetera. You know, those aren't taxpayers. Those are tax consumers. So, okay, so he bombed Syria twice. He ran the, the neocon pressure campaign against Iran. And when push came to shove and they shot down an unmanned drone, I'll give him credit. You know, the, the empire wanted him to bomb Iran. And he said, I'm not going to do that over an unmanned drone. Good for him. The sanest thing I've ever heard any president in my lifetime say is I'm not killing 150 people over a piece of equipment. We can go sue them for the money and they can take it out of the money that they're suing us for, for overthrowing their government in 1953. Oh yeah, forgot about that. So that's Iran, Ukraine. I mean, Trump tried to hold up funding weapons to Ukraine to antagonize Russia for a little while to try to get the Ukrainian government to attack his political enemy. And of course, his political enemy should have been attacked. But this was the reason Trump did this, okay? It wasn't any desire for peace or any hesitation on this whole anti-Russia campaign. You know, he campaigned before he became president on a better relationship with Russia, but his actions didn't do anything. And people make excuses. Well, you know, the, the Russiagate, you know, pressured him into adopting a tougher stance. No, it didn't. He was president of the United States. He could have adopted any stance he wanted. And if that's it, if, if you know, just doing that will undo anything that anything good that people vote for a supposedly outsider president for, well, what's the use of having one, okay? If you're, he's just going to fold under some political pressure, then, you know, 
There's no use in electing him again. And really, this is what Donald Trump did over and over and over. He knew what the right thing to do was, and he just folded when the empire yelled at him. So what if you don't get another term? Do the right thing. Yeah, easier said than done. I get it. Again, I go back to, well, if that's what's going to happen and that's what his entire record looks like, what's the use of electing him again? He's just going to do the same thing. So really, that's kind of my assessment of the Trump presidency was I think he sincerely believed the things he campaigned on, including the things that were stupid, like the tariffs, which were a disaster, by the way. I wish somebody would admit that, that when he put the the really heavy tariffs on, manufacturing went into a recession. Okay, that's just a fact. And when he took them off, the heavier tariffs still left some of the lighter ones in place, manufacturing immediately recovered. Also a fact. I have this in my book. It's the Fed stupid. I show you on charts exactly when the tariffs started, when they kicked in, when China retaliated, when manufacturing went into a recession. And it was almost immediately after the announcement was made that there was going to be a deal in late 2019 that went into effect early 2020 that manufacturing turned right back around. So, you know, yeah, he was sincere about that. And unfortunately, he got a chance to try that. That's a subject for another day on why the president gets to tax when it says the taxing authority is given to Congress. In any case, I think he was also sincere about his foreign policy, but he was more concerned about staying president and maybe getting reelected time and again. Lockdowns. He started out talking about all the damage, the non-COVID damage lockdowns would do. And when the establishment yelled at him, he turned around, backed down, and went the other way. He said he was going to get the troops home by Christmas of 2018 from Afghanistan. And when the generals yelled at him, he backed down and went the other way. And he didn't end up even leaving Afghanistan. He allowed Joe Biden to get the credit for that. Shuffling Joe Biden. Imagine how embarrassing that is. So what else? Iran, he went along. I mean, everybody kind of ignores the fact that he did a regime change operation. Let's take a short break for this important message. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low-quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about Minicoders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. And now let's get back to the show. Don't worry about tomorrow. I'll 
operation in Venezuela as well. This whole Juan Guaido thing, that's all under Trump's. And he knew all about it. It's not like they did this against his will. So the record is not very good when compared to the foreign policy speech that Trump gave in either late 2015, maybe early 2016, describing his new foreign policy, which, again, was only going to be marginally better. No troops were coming home. No spending was being cut. And, of course, Trump never promised to cut any spending. He, in fact, he said that entitlements wouldn't be touched. So to that extent, his campaign wasn't even that great. But, you know, let's not attack him for going back on that promise. But everything else, he pretty much folded like a, like a cheap suit in the face of a little pressure from the establishment. And let me not under, underplay that or understate that. A lot of pressure from the establishment. And again, they seem to have been able to do, get them to do what they wanted. And I just wanted to bring this up too. I wrote down some notes here. Obamacare, everyone forgets about that. So when he becomes president, the Republicans have Congress and the Senate. They have both houses of Congress. They have the White House. They can do whatever they want. They start saying, we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. And the reason for not just repealing it the first day was, well, we got to come up with a better, a good replacement. That was their pitch. Well, just think about the logic of that for a minute. Why does it have to be replaced with anything? I thought Obamacare was a negative so that we were better off without it. So you wouldn't have to replace something we were better off without. Yes, you could try to further reform the healthcare system, which in my opinion would be less and less government involvement in it going forward, but there shouldn't be any reason to not repeal Obamacare on day one unless it was a net positive in their minds, unless there was something about it uh, they felt was made people better off than they were without Obamacare, okay? So, Right away. Now, I know, you know, it had a lot of giveaways in it, and they didn't want to take away giveaways because it hurts them politically. All right, so why elect them? Again, it gets back to if they're not going to do anything, then what's everybody so so fervently passionate about reelecting Donald Trump for? This is what we're going to So those are some thoughts on Trump. I actually think he's he's a decent guy, gigantic ego. But he's kind of funny. He's entertaining. And I thought we'd get that from Biden, too, before this whole march towards World War Three began. I thought that the unfortunately his his diminishing mental faculties. And, and of course, he wasn't starting from a very high place to begin with. Joe Biden was was patently stupid 50 years ago. And I remember his 1988 campaign where he was the butt of all the jokes from the establishment. The people on the Today Show, I remember saying, can somebody be nominated for the president without ever saying a word? Because that's the only chance Joe Biden has. This is in 1988. So uh, anyway, that's those are my thoughts on Trump. And I wanted to say a few things about DeSantis. So the good thing about DeSantis of course, is that he did buck the establishment when it came to COVID lockdowns a little late. I mean, let's face it, he went right along in March of 2020 and he kept his state 
at least under some restrictions until September of 2020. That's six months under mandates and lockdowns and mask mandates and what have you. So not perfect, but he was the second governor to reopen his state. Well, I shouldn't say reopen. Christy Nome up in South Dakota never closed down. She was much better on this than DeSantis. Some might say, well, it's easy to do that in South Dakota where there's, you know, 50 people in the whole state. Not really true, by the way. I mean, their capital city is a pop, well-populated city as big as many cities across the United States that would still, you know, have uh, some consequence if, if lockdowns really worked, which they didn't, of course. But so Christy Nome was better. We'll get to her in a minute. But OK, DeSantis opened up. But what's the rest of his record? So it's kind of mixed. DeSantis couldn't just say we're not going to mandate from the government. He started working with the Florida legislature to kind of bully private companies. Some of his bullying is good and some of his bullying is bad. Most of it is bad. Like, you know, you you can't tell a private company they can't require vaccines of their employees. Uh, Christy Noem would not do that, by the way. She said that's not the government's business. And as far as I know, this is not a big problem where nobody can work in South Dakota because she just allowed lawyers to impose vaccine mandates if they wanted to. So she trusted the free market. DeSantis came down with the heavy hand of the government. Floridians, I'm sure, approve of that. But this is a precedent now that incurs further on private property ownership. And it gets a little hard to keep defending things, uh, or I should say opposing things, like the 64 Civil Rights Act or sticking up for the Christian Baker, both positions I hold firmly, when on the other hand, when private companies do something we don't like, we go in there and stomp all over them. So I've made this point on previous podcasts, so I give them a ding for that. Where I will not give them a ding is this whole kerfluffle over public schools. You know, the the proponents of critical race theory and all the gender stuff are trying to say this is a free speech issue. And no, it's not. Okay, the government doesn't have a right to free speech. If you're working for the government, then you do what the voters tell you to do or their elected representatives tell you to do. You don't have a right to talk about your sex life with your students, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual or otherwise. You know, you don't have a right to impose or teach a curriculum that um, the voters don't want you to teach. There, There is no right. So, you know, my position, of course, is public schools shouldn't exist. And, of course, I just paid the bill for the ones I've never used in my whole life, nor has anyone in my family or any of my ancestors since they came to this country have all gone to Catholic schools. But but I still have to pay for them every year, and I'm still trying to figure out how anyone justifies that. But public schools shouldn't exist, but if they do exist, certainly they are subject to any rules that the voters through their representatives can impose on them. You don't want them to teach this. You don't want them to teach that. The voters can say that for sure, and especially down at the local level with their school boards, etc. Do I have a problem with the state overruling that in this case? No, because it's such evil. And again, the institutions shouldn't exist anyway. So I don't really ding DeSantis on that whole subject. 
And I just responded to somebody on Twitter to say, look, you know, this is why you shouldn't have government schools because the government decides what you get to teach. Now, you want to teach this nonsense that, in my, from my perspective, you should be able to do that, but you need to use your own money. You can't make somebody else pay for it. And now you're being made to pay for teaching you don't agree with. Can't we just all get along, abolish the public schools and have our own? And uh, this whole thing about the poor kids won't get educated. Well, the poor kids find a way to eat somehow. We don't have government grocery stores. Yes, there's there's government aid programs. So we certainly could just send them money to go to a private. And of course, the cost would come down precipitously. Still not, of course, a libertarian solution, but it's more libertarian. And it would be much better for the kids if they were allowed to go to the school, private schools, privately run efficiently with the curriculum of their choice. And if they couldn't afford to, the government could supplement their tuition. And that would be much better than government owning the means of production of education. We could see what a disaster that has been. Anyway, I'm off the subject on DeSantis. And my biggest problem with DeSantis is, of course, that he's a stone-cold neocon. He's an Iraq war veteran. I mean, he was like a lawyer in, in, in the Army, but whatever. He, he went over there. But he was all for the Iraq war. And I don't know that he's ever really repudiated that position. If someone wants to leave a comment showing that he has, I'd be very glad to see that. But I went searching before this latest clip came out about, and I might have mentioned this in a podcast before, but I went searching for some statements from DeSantis before he was governor, when he was a congressman, and how he supported, yeah, he says he's always supported Trump, but what did he support Trump for? He supported Trump's decision not to leave Afghanistan. That was the clip I found on him making a foreign policy statement. And of course, this other one is he's singing the neocon, neoliberal tune on Russia way back in 2017, criticizing Trump for trying to, to you know, not be strong or, or to try to establish a better relationship. I think cozy was the word he used. So there's nothing that, that DeSantis has ever said that would indicate to me he wouldn't be another Mike Pompeo only as president or even John Bolton, maybe not so crazed as John Bolton, but he generally supports the empire, the foreign policy that, you know, a lot of people thought Trump was going to push back on. Every statement he's ever made when asked about foreign policy toes the line, the usual anti-China baloney. So I think electing him president would be, you would get less of the good things he's done as governor because you don't have that power as president and all of the bad things that you didn't like about George W. Let's just be frank. And I hate to say this, but our friend Christy Noam, while being even a better governor than Ron DeSantis, also just spews the usual crap. I had to go down to Washington, not to the city, but near the city, on business during CPAC last year. And God knows why, but I, I bought a ticket to get into CPAC and just walk around. And after hearing a few people speak, it became evidently clear to me why I'm not a conservative, never have been a conservative, never really been a liberal either. I was, I was a skeptic in the 90s. That was the name of my band. 
and I just thought everybody was full of baloney, and I gradually became a libertarian. But no, you know, Christy Noem's speech had all of the earmarks saying to the establishment, put me, you know, in an in a national position and I'm ready to toe the line. Very disappointing because she's so great on everything else. And even when she took some fire from conservatives for not banning vax mandates by businesses, she stood up with a libertarian position and said, it's just not our business. And again, that worked out. You know, there is no big, huge problem in South Dakota with vax mandates by private businesses. She let them choose. She let the market work, and it worked. DeSantis did not do that. So I guess my biggest fear with both Trump and DeSantis is that electing either one of them is just going to get us more what we already have had. Trump, I think, sincerely believes in his positions on foreign policy, but will fold at every opportunity when pressure is applied. I don't see that being different this time around because this time around he will probably have to make promises to play ball more even though he did to not even you know make disruptive statements just to get back in or at least he'll want his his second presidency to not be like his first where he was under constant attack so i don't see a trump presidency making a difference or making the difference that his voters think it's going to make and of course with desantis i think He becomes president, and we've just got George W. Bush, Obama, even Clinton back on foreign policy. Until I hear strong statements to the contrary, and I haven't heard any, you know, I hear a lot of weasel talk when he tries to kind of sound a little bit like the Trump foreign policy, the the foreign policy of words, not actions, but he always leaves himself room to just go in there and be George W. Bush. So that's what I'm afraid of with DeSantis. I think this is all much ado about nothing. So I'm somewhat pessimistic because I don't see somebody else coming out who's going to be anything but the establishment. We'll see. It's early yet. And I imagine, you know, the neocons will run an even more neocon than DeSantis. Maybe not. They seem to be lining up. Bill Crystal is behind DeSantis. The Lincoln Project is behind DeSantis. All what's her face? The old Cheney's daughter, Liz Cheney. She's behind. They're all behind him. So that should tell you something, right? So I'll leave it there. I'm going to say more about this going forward, of course. But and I'll look for DeSantis to perhaps give us some reason for hope. I'm not. I would not be optimistic about a Trump presidency. You know. I think it would be more of the same. It would be a little better than Biden, maybe, on on a few superficial things. But let's face it, the Ukraine coup and aftermath and march to war continued, you know, without even slowing down under Trump. So I I don't see that, that. And that should all be resolved by the time he or whoever takes office if they do. So I don't know. I, I, I remain with my conviction for quite a few decades now that we're most we're best off with a Democrat in the White House and a very strong majority in the Congress, a Republican. And that's when the Republicans seem to find their 
limited government roots, <laughs> supposedly, and push back on some things. I'll point out that in Obama's second term, spending actually went down in some years. And I don't mean baseline spending. I mean, like, this year's spending is less in real terms than last year's. So that actually happened. Why? Not because Obama didn't want to spend more, because the Republicans dug in and those sequester cuts started to actually materialize. And if you look at you know economic growth, the stock market, everything, it's when the government starts to cut spending that everything turns around, finally. And that happens well before Trump become pre- becomes president. So there's something to be said for, again, a Democratic president. Maybe Biden gets reelected with the Republicans taking both houses of Congress, I mean, preferably with veto-proof majorities, or maybe not, maybe just gridlock, whatever. That might be a better outcome than a Trump presidency with the Democrats having maybe even the Senate, and him under constant attack and folding on the few good positions he has. We'll see. So thanks, everybody, for your patience over the last month. I expect the podcasts will ease back in maybe once a week. I do have some interviews with some great guests coming up, and and then we'll slowly start building back towards full-time as I get this venture and my family situation under control. So until next time, as always, if you have not downloaded my book, It's the Fed Stupid yet, you can get it for free at itsthefedstupid.com. And it's never been more relevant than now, even now while the Fed is raising, I mean, everything in the book still holds true that the Fed is really in complete control of the economy. It takes a while for their actions to have an effect and of course, they're not in control of micro sectors, but where the economy goes overall is under the complete control of a central planner. Of course, that has no resemblance to capitalism or free markets, and uh, the Fed has got to go. But right now, they're trying to undo the damage they've done over the past 14 or 15 years, really the past 20 years. Well, I don't know. Go back to 1913. It's all been damaged, but they've done especially a lot in this century. And uh, they are trying to undo that, again, by this artificial central planning hammer that they have. And it's just, it's a terrible institution. It's thefedstupid.com. For those people who are local, I will be doing my acoustic act at Ponies in Middleport tomorrow night, 7 o'clock starting an hour earlier at the owner's request. So uh, come on out and say hello. And if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.